today on Doomed! This past Sunday, the people of Peru went to the election booth and they voted for one of two choices. Either the left-wing candidate, a teacher and unionist, or the far right-wing candidate who is the daughter of a former Peruvian president who's currently in jail for crimes consisting of corruption and human rights abuses. Sounds like an easy choice, right? Well, for a lot of people it seems like it wasn't because the results are so close, we still don't have a winner. Uh, it sounds a little bit uh, familiar, right? Uh, but joining me now to discuss all of that, let's pull us up on the feed here. Joining us now to discuss is Dr. Jo Marie Burt. She's an associate professor of political science and Latin American studies at George Mason University and a senior fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America and, of course, an expert on Peru. Uh, Dr. Jo Marie Burt, thank you so much for joining me today. Sure, it's my pleasure to be here. Now, I, I guess there's, there's actually a lot I would like to discuss with you. Um, and I guess we should start with what uh, is probably on everyone's mind, and that's the election. And it, it seems like we, we still don't really know for sure who the winner is. But before we jump into that, let's can you give us a brief rundown of how we got here? Now, actually, a couple of months ago, I had a... Um, a Peruvian student uh, who lives over in Peru on the show to discuss the protests that happened and, and tell us, you know, how they basically went through three presidents in like a matter of a couple of a, we a couple of weeks. One week. Right. One week. Wow. One I misremembered that. Yeah, I got it mixed up. Three presidents, one week, not the other way around. Uh, can, can you just break down how we got here and who the two candidates uh, were or are, I should say? Sure. Well, let me, there's, there's a very long history uh, to, to understanding what's happening uh, in Peru right now. But let's start with the first round elections, which took place in April of this year. There were 18 candidates and none of them got more than 15 percent in that first round vote. So the top vote getter was the guy you just mentioned, the teacher, the unionist, the leftist, Pedro Castillo. He got the most votes, votes 15%. It was not really a lot, but he got the highest vote. The second highest vote getter was Keiko Fujimori, the far right candidate that you mentioned, and she got almost 11% of the vote. So in that first round, only the two top, top candidates only got around 25% of the vote. So they're not exactly super popular candidates, right? And the, right. the field was very divided. Right. And so as a result, th there were also simultaneous elections for Congress. So you have now 10 parties represented in the new Peruvian Congress that will be inaugurated starting on July 28th. OK, so the second round, the way Peru's elections work is if no one wins a majority in the first round vote, it goes to a second round. The top two vote getters run off in a second vote. So now you have this far left, this far right, neither of whom are terribly popular. Um, go, going up against each other. So that's how we got to where we are today in, in the immediate short term. There's obviously a much longer history here that maybe we can get into. Um, and as the campaign evolved, these 
two candidates started to appeal to uh, voters. In some, some, some voters, I think, voted in favor of the candidates for what they stood for, which we can talk about. But a lot of people were voting for one or the other candidate because they didn't like the opposite candidate. Right. So there's right. a lot of people in Peru who don't like Keiko Fujimori and everything that she stands for. In fact, this is her third presidential run, which apparently is the third time she's failed, which we will talk about. We, we don't know. There's no official winner yet, but I'm pretty sure she lost. We'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> um, so, um, and then people voted against who didn't like Pedro Castillo, who represents his far left uh, position and proves a country with um, a strong aversion to leftism in, among some sectors of the population because not only because of the history of the Shining Path, a Maoist, very violent insurgency that was active in the 80s and 90s, but also because of a sort of leftist, reformist military government in the 1960s that expropriated big, um, uh, they call them latifundios, big sort of landed estates from the very wealthy oligarchy and either gave them to peasants or created state-run co-ops with them. So there's a long history of anti-leftism among middle and upper-class Peruvians. Right. So it wasn't just anti-shining path, anti-left. It's this longer history of anti-anything that smacks of, you know, center-left. Right, right. It, it seems like when you look at, uh, you know, that area, like all of Peru's neighbors have, you know, a, a strong leftist, you know, even if they're not currently the ruling party, they have some sort of strong leftist party in that country, whereas Peru always has seen, always has seemed to be more uh, conservative or, or further to the right than, than their neighboring uh, countries. I would say that that's true um, over the last 30 years. But in the 1980s, when I first went to Peru in 1986, Peru had a very vibrant, legal, democratic left that participated in elections. In fact, the mayor of Lima at the time was a Marxist. He was the head of a, of a coalition called the United Left. But what happened? The Shining Path was growing at exactly the same time. Uh, they Their plan was to take power through a violent armed revolution, and anyone who stood in their way was an enemy. So the left, was this legal left that I'm talking about, the united left, was suddenly being attacked by the shining path on the extreme left and by the military on the right, which didn't distinguish between the united left and the shining path. So right. the united left kind of got crushed in the context of the conflict that took place between the government and the Shining Path in the 1980s and into the 1990s. So by the time the 1990s came around, that United Left Party, one of the biggest left-wing coalitions in Latin America in the 80s, vanished. Right. Vanished. And, and so that's, sorry, that's why what you see from the, from the 90s forward is really very conservative, um, uh, politics in Peru. Right now, and if I'm not, if not, I'm not wrong. Um, that government that cracked down and squashed the left is uh, Fujimori's father, Alberto Fujimori. Correct. So right. So I mean, it it, it this anteceded Fujimori, 
but 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 Keiko's father, Alberto Fujimori, came to power in 1990 in the midst of this um, uh, armed conflict between the Shining Path and the military, when the economy of Peru was, I mean, really in the toilet. The economy crashed. Um, hyper. I mean, I remember hyperinflation was like 7,000% in 1989. Imagine what that must have been like. Um, the currency literally lost all of its value. The government had to create an entirely new currency, right? Um, the violence was expanding and the political parties, sort of the traditional political parties were all kind of imploding. People had lost confidence in the system. And this outsider came along and said, I'm going to change everything. I'm not going to carry out a neoliberal austerity shock plan the way my rival, the, now the Nobel laureate Mario Vargas Llosa, is promising to do. And he, out of nowhere, sort of not unlike what happened with Pedro Castillo this time around, he kind of appeared out of nowhere just a few weeks before the election, the first round of elections. He started appearing in the polls, started inching his way up, and boom, he made it into the second round of election. And he ultimately defeated Vargas Llosa in 1990, became president. And in 1992, about a year and a half into his um, government, he carried out what is known in Peru as the autogolpe, the self-coup. He basically shut down the Congress, he took over the judiciary, and he suspended the Constitution, all with the backing of the military. And he basically then had total power, and he, he used that power to radically change Peruvian society, imposed neoliberal economics, he um, basically wiped out the opposition. There was a lot of repression, a lot of um, human rights abuses at this time. Um, and he ruled for the rest of the decade in a very authoritarian manner. And so, yeah, that's Keiko Fujimori's father. And that is who she models herself on. There have been moments, both in the 2016 campaign and in this campaign, where she, she tried to say, I'm sorry for what happened in the past. But no one really believed it. Right. I mean... She said many, many times, A, that she's going to implement a hard, heavy-handed uh, approach to crime, to violence, to whatever social problems exist, the same way her dad did. She's promised to uh, release her dad from prison. You mentioned Fujimori was sent to jail. He was prosecuted and sent to jail in 2009 for human rights violations, as well as a series of corruption uh, cases. She promises to free him. And yeah, he, didn't go, he, you know, didn't go, he didn't go straight to jail either. Like he fled, you right? Know, he fled. So his government collapsed in the midst of a series of corruption scandals. Uh, videos were released uh, into the public that showed his number one security advisor, uh, Vladimiro Montesinos, uh, basically paying off opposition congressmen to abandon their political party and join their political party so that they could have a majority in Congress and rule the way they wanted to. Uh, and then a whole series of videos started leaking out, like literally hundreds. I, I have six, is it six or eight volumes of transcripts of these videos. They're called the Vladi videos. And they show him bribing uh, members of the opposition, politicians, military officials, media moguls, economic elites, you name it, they're in there. So these tapes were released, Montesinos fled the country, and then shortly after, uh, thereafter, Fujimori fled the country. 
um, along with a bunch of suitcases, presumably containing videos that we probably will never see. And probably some money as well. We, we, we just don't know. Uh, and the Peruvian government and the victims of his regime tried to get him extradited from Japan unsuccessfully. Um, but ultimately, he decided to leave Japan, where he had been given citizenship by the Japanese government. So he was being protected by the Japanese government, despite all the charges against him. Um, and he went to Ch he went to Chile. This was in 2005. And there were elections coming up in 2006. Now, even though he was a heavy-handed dictator under whom there were massive human rights violations, he was popular among a certain segment of the Peruvian population because he was seen as someone who controlled inflation, got the economy back on track under his government, the Shining Path, leaders were, were arrested and violence decreased. So he was seen by at least some people as, you know, someone who set things right in Peru. So his advisor said, come to Chile. From there, you can launch your, your, your re-election campaign. You'll be good to go. Only they didn't realize this is the age of human rights, right? right. When, you know, when uh, Augusto Pinochet, the dictator of Chile in 1998, went to London for back surgery, what happened to him? He was arrested, and the, the Spanish government tried to have him extradited uh, to Spain to stand trial for uh, torture and other human rights abuses committed during his dictatorship. So I'm not going to say that any every dictator who leaves their home is going to be subjected to this kind of uh, treatment, but it, it happens, and it's happened to many others as well. And that's what happened to Fujimori. Right. He landed in Chile, and he was almost virtually immediately arrested. Um, and within a matter of uh, two years, he was extradited back to Peru, put on trial. I was in the courtroom. I was an international mm -hmm. observer for that trial and uh, was pretty much obsessed with what was happening in that courtroom um, because it's not every day that you see a former head of state. And I, and I just written a book about his government. Um, so I knew a lot of, about what they were talking about. Uh, so it, it's just not every day you see a former head of state put on trial for uh, massive human rights abuses. And it was an extraordinary proceeding. He was found guilty, sentenced to the maximum of 25 years. Um, and he's still in jail today. He was released in 2017 by the president at the time, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, a banker who defeated Keiko in 2016. And the reason he uh, uh, pardoned Fujimori was basically to save his own skin. Keiko refused to accept her defeat in 2016, and she was doing everything in her power to obstruct the Kuczynski government and force him out of office. And so what Kuczynski did was strike a deal with Keiko Fujimori's brother, get this, who was a member of Congress at the time, and, Ke and his, his, uh, Keiko's brother, his name is Kenji, he struck a deal with the president, said, I will make sure that part of my party does not vote to remove you if you free my dad. Jeez. So he's like going against what his sister wants because his sister is trying to remove the president because what he really wants is his dad out of jail. Right. So the president agrees thinking he's going to save his own skin. And he did it on Christmas Eve. It ruined my Christmas that year. Ruined a lot of people's Christmas that year. In fact... 
on that Christmas Eve, tens of thousands of Peruvians went into the street instead of going to their family homes for Christmas dinner to protest this illegal pardon. Right. Um, ultimately, what happened is um, the, inter the International American Court of Human Rights ruled that this uh, pardon was illegal and then sent it back to the Peruvian courts and then the Peruvian courts essentially nullified the pardon. And guess what? They sent Fujimori back to jail, which is where he is today. And how, how would his daughter get him out this this time? If that's what she wants, well, right? You know, this is what this is what she does. She she um she says one thing, but she means another. She says, I I will free him. It's my political will, it's my political decision. But I will do so respecting the process. But that's an oxymoron because the, the process has already happened. There's already been, you know, Peruvian tribunals and international tribunals that say there is no possibility of a pardon in this case. And that's for two reasons. One, he was convicted of gross violations of human rights and international law. You cannot pardon such such abuses. And the other reason is he was convicted in um, of uh, aggravated kidnapping. Right. And he himself is he's the one who, who passed that law essentially to punish members of the Shining Path right. and another another uh, guerrilla group that that did a lot of kidnapping. He was convicted of aggravated kidnapping, and Peruvian law says you cannot pardon those convicted of aggravated kidnapping. Now, the presidents do have the right to pardon, but it's not an absolute right in Peru. So it's conditioned by these two things. The only way he could be pardoned is if he is granted a humanitarian pardon, which requires that he either is essentially on his deathbed or has some kind of degenerative disease. That's going to lead to, so if he had like a really bad kind of cancer, I think everyone in Peru, including the victims, would agree that the humanitarian thing would be uh, to allow him to live out his final days at home. Right. But just because Keiko Fujimori feels like he should be free, that's not a reason. Right. Right. So that's, that's the problem there. Right. I feel like, I feel like people in, in this country see, uh, you know, all these uh, leaders in, you know, South American countries, Latin American countries, you know, actually face the music and they think to themselves, oh man, what's what's going on down there? There's so many corrupt leaders, but it's like, no, that's not the issue. The issue is that they they actually seem to punish them for doing what they did, whereas all the world leaders everywhere else seem to get away with. In some cases, that is true. <laughs> there have been significant prosecutions in Latin America for both corruption and for human rights abuses in many countries of the region. In some countries, there's been really nothing. Brazil, for example. Right. No, no military official was ever convicted for human rights abuses that occurred during that that dictatorship. Um, there were some uh, corruption trials in Brazil, but so, so so it's a mixed bag. But but there have been important cases where presidents uh, and other high-ranking government officials have been held to account. And I think that is important. In fact, you know, um, I remember. Uh, you know, I, I know probably your your listeners are thinking about the most recent administration, but I'll just take us back uh, a few before that. In 2014, I remember sitting uh, at my kitchen table, drinking my morning coffee, listening to NPR, and uh, hearing about the Senate report on the George Bush's George W. Bush government's use of torture right. in the post 9/11 war on terror. 
and how the, the basically the decision of the uh, Obama administration at the time was release this report or at least partially release the port report, but they weren't going to pursue prosecutions. And I remember thinking to myself, so why is it that Peru or Guatemala, countries with historically very weak institutions, weak judiciaries, how come they can prosecute their presidents who commit gross violations of human rights? And we can't do that. So actually, I spun off a little editorial about that, and I got it published in a few places. Because it really, as an American, didn't it really, it really, it really bothered me that why, why, can, why can't we muster the courage, right, to hold our leaders accountable when they violate the law and when they violate international law, whether it's George W. Bush, whether it's Obama, whether it's uh, Trump, in any of them, right? Right, right. Now, just so people sort of get an understanding, because I, I don't want anyone to walk away going like, oh, you know, Alberto Fujimori went to jail for human rights abuses, whatever that is. Can, can you just explain what some of the things he actually uh, did so we can get a better picture of, of why, why this was such a horrible dictatorship? That's a great, that's a great question, actually. So let me just start with the, the cases that he was actually prosecuted for. There are numerous other cases that he was not prosecuted for. He was prosecuted for essentially four cases. One was a massacre that occurred in Lima in 1991. Um, the, the, a special military, essentially a death squad. It was called the Colina Group. It was essentially operated as a death squad, but it was comprised all of military officials. And it was controlled by Montesinos and Fujimori directly. They believed that um, there was this uh, party organized for one afternoon, and they believed the members of that party were all members of the Shining Path. And they wanted to send a message to the Shining Path. And so they literally organized this massacre. They went in, had silencers on their machine guns, and they just opened fire. And they murdered 15 people, uh, wounded a couple. They left one person um, paraplegic. Uh, and among those killed were, was an eight-year-old boy. Okay. The fact is, these people had absolutely nothing to do with Shining Path. The, the intelligence was wrong, number one. But number two, even if they were members of Shining Path, in a democratic government, you arrest them, you bring evidence against them, and you prosecute them and you send them to jail. You don't just go in and murder them. Right. That's called extrajudicial execution, right? That's a human rights violation. The second major case that he was prosecuted for in, was the next year. Um, there was a bombing in downtown, a uh, 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 sort of middle-class part of Lima, in which 21 people, all civilians were killed. And this was a, a Shining Path bomb. So the military, this same military unit that I'm talking about, the Colina Group Military Death Squad, decided to do a reprisal attack. And they went to the Cantuta University, which is in the outskirts of Lima, which is a teacher's university, and they picked out ten, uh, nine students and one professor who they imagined, again, erroneously, were members of Shining Path, and, and kidnapped them, and then later executed them. To this day, only the partial remains of five of those people have been found. 
the remains of the other five remain missing. Um, so that's the second case. And the other two cases were um, kidnappings. Right after that military coup, that, that self-coup that I talked about in 1992, mm -hmm. when Fujimori took total power and shut down the Congress and all that, um, a journalist, a very well-known journalist from Peru named Gustavo Gorriti, who had extensively been investigating Montesinos and the role of the military, was kidnapped and held incommunicado. He was released because of intensive international pressure. And a, a businessman, Samuel Dyer, was also kidnapped and eventually released. So those are the cases that Fujimori was convicted of. But there were thousands of cases of what, what is called improved forced disappearance, meaning the military, the security forces, essentially detain or kidnap you, and then you're never heard from again. They provide no information to your family. They deny any knowledge of what happened to you. Sometimes they kill you and bury your body in a mass grave. Sometimes they throw your body in the ocean, that sort of thing. And there are mass, mass, massive use of arbitrary detention, torture, sexual violence, and, 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 and outright uh, assassinations. So those are the kinds of things we're talking about. I, I, it's worth mentioning that Fujimori is currently facing charges for a different kind of human rights abuse during his regime called forced sterilizations. Right, right. I heard about this, yes. So um, in the second half of his uh, government, the second half of the 1990s, uh, his government was intent on trying to reduce poverty. And one of their, you know, sort of, you know, very Nazi-like plans was to reduce poverty by preventing mostly Andean indigenous men and women from having babies by forcibly sterilizing them without their knowledge or without their consent. And it's estimated that 300,000 men, most mostly women, but also some men, were sterilized without their consent or without their knowledge. And so right now there's a proceeding going on that will, it's sort of the evidentiary phase hearing. So the court will determine whether there's enough evidence to send Fujimori to trial and three of his health ministers who oversaw this plan. Unfortunately, one of those health ministers was just elected to the Congress. So as soon as he becomes a congressman, in theory, he will have immunity and will no longer face charges. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Let's use this actually to, to segue into, uh, in this current day election, the, the one we're still waiting results for, uh, how the different areas... Uh, of Peru seem to have voted, and it seems like uh, the, those people who uh, who their their you know their grandmas or or great grandmas were were sterilized by um, uh, Fujimori, uh, they don't seem like they were the ones who voted for his daughter. They were not the <laughs> right. ones who voted for his daughter. I mean, it's really kind of remarkable. Um, so Keiko had comfortably. One, Lima, which is sort of the economic and political center of the country. Peru is a very um, uh, Lima-centric country, right? A lot of power is concentrated in the capital city. A third of the population lives there. Most of the wealth is concentrated there. And she won, I think it was on like 55, 58% of the vote in Lima. She was expected to win a little bit more. So there was a kind of a hidden vote because there are a lot of poor people in Lima 
who I think didn't want to tell pollsters that they were actually voting for Pedro Castillo. Right, because okay. from, my, from my understanding, there are like areas like um like Callao where it's more of a like a you know more more it's not a rich area like uh, the heart uh, of Lima. There's also these 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 areas that are uh, they they started out as land invasions. They they used to be called barrios populares or shanty towns. Now they're you know more uh, consolidated districts, but there's a lot of poverty in these districts, right? Um, and I think that Castillo probably did a little bit better in, in some of those areas than a lot of people expected. And, and Keiko Fujimori also did okay in this sort of the northern coast of Peru, which is a very dynamic sort of uh, export uh, capitalist economy there. And she did okay in the northern jungle region. But the central Andes, the entire center of the country, and then the south that was dominated by Pedro Castillo. I mean, dominated. There were there were parts of, of, of those rural areas, Cusco, Ayacucho. These were the areas where the war was hit hardest, where poverty is deepest, where there are more indigenous people. He won 85, 88% in these regions. In fact, wow. one of the, you know, you, you've heard that Fujimori is now claiming fraud. One of their arguments for the supposed fraud is there are some um, voting centers where she got literally zero votes. And they're like, it's statistically impossible for her to get zero votes. Well, in fact, it is not statistically impossible. They just don't like you down there. Right. <laughs> that people are having on Twitter and social media. It's it's very interesting. But what it shows is a country that is very deeply divided between the rural, more Andean, more uh, uh, economically left behind regions, and the, the 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 Lima and the northern coast, which are more you know what better off. The economy is a bit more dynamic and where political power is more concentrated. But this is not a new thing. If you look back at the 20, the 2016 elections were a little bit odd because it was two right-wing candidates facing off in the second round. But if you go back to the 2011 votes when Keiko Fujimori faced off against another sort of leftist nationalist leader, Ollanta Mala, it was a very similar map. Ollanta Omala did very well in that Andean corridor and in the south, and Keiko did much better in the north and in Lima. So this is not new. Um, it's just that I think Pedro Castillo, um, somehow he captured it a little bit, I don't know, he, he captured it in a way that I think was surprising for many people. Right. A lot of people underestimated him. First of all, first of all, because he's a, a virtual novice to party politics. He's never held political office of any kind. He was a school teacher and he was involved in the teachers trade union, which is the most powerful and important trade union in Peru. So that's not nothing. That's not no political experience, but it's not party politics experience, right? So he doesn't have that politics experience. Um, he's not, he wasn't really the member of a of an organized, organic political party either. He basically became the candidate of a political party because the president of that political party himself could not run because he was convicted of, cor of administrative corruption. 
So somehow they came to an agreement for Pedro Castillo to be the, the candidate. And I don't think that Pedro Castillo himself quite expected to catapult into the second round vote and then uh, to become the new president of Peru. So it's, you know, it is quite a surprising turn of events, I think. Right. And, and, you know, his his uh, his like party logo is the pencil. Right. He is. A, it's like a so. It's, it's, yes, it's it's a smart it's a move. Brilliant. Right. It was a brilliant um, symbol. Right. Uh, because and, I, and I'll tell you one reason I think it's so brilliant, because um, and anthropologists have writ, have written books and books and books about this, about how your average Peruvian sees education as the key to getting ahead. And maybe I can't educate myself, but I can sure as heck make sure I'm going to educate my kid so they can get ahead. And so that pencil, that symbol of education was really very well thought out. Right. And I see you himself as a teacher. It just it symbolically, it was very potent, I think, uh, more potent than I think most people realized. Right. Now, now, I've seen some some criticism, valid criticism of Castillo. And, you know, I, I want to also say that, you know, I feel like there are people out there who, who take this criticism and then try to equate him to uh, the right wing politics of the daughter of a dictator. And I don't think it's equatable at all. But I still think, you know, it's important to still talk about someone's failings in order to hopefully, uh, you know, a left in Peru uh, can push him left on those issues where he seems to not be so left on. And it seems like he he happens to be, uh, while very left on economic issues, which is great, uh, he seems to be more of a social conservative. And I've seen people... Uh, wave that off as you know that's just that's just where Peru is as a whole. I've seen some people say, well, that's not true either. So, so where where is he on that, and and on what specific issues? And is that true that he's aligned with you know the majority of the 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 uh, his voters even? Right. So, I mean, I do think that I mean it's important to keep in mind that Peru is a heavily Catholic country, right? Um, And we all know that Catholic social teachings, especially in Latin America, tends towards very conservative, right? So just for example, reproductive rights, it's not something that most Latin American women have, in part because the Catholic church holds so much power that governments are not really willing to go go there. And a lot of people believe in the teachings of the Catholic Church. So there is a deep social conservatism in Peru. That said, one of the other leftist candidates in the first round was Veronica Mendoza of the um, uh, Juntos por el Peru, Together for Peru Party, um, who, on the contrary, is not a social conservative at all. Um, she's pro-reproductive rights, pro-women's rights, pro-LGBTQ rights. Um, And guess what? She didn't get very many votes at all. In fact, she got far fewer votes than I think a lot of people expected her to get. Was it because of that? Was it because of something else? I can't say. But certainly Peru is a very socially conservative country. And I think it's, I almost think it's gotten a little more conservative over the years. Um, just a few years ago, I don't know if you've heard about this in Latin America, there's a whole movement connected to evangelical churches, but also 
um, conservative Catholic uh, churches as well called, um, uh, well, there's different names for it, I guess, in different countries. In Peru, it was called Conmigo No Te Metes, Do Not Mess With My Kids. And it's basically opposing gender perspectives or what they call gender ideology as some kind of Satanistic, leftist, you know, conspiracy. So there has been a lot of pushback by conservative groups, both connected to the Catholic Church, to evangelical church, and just conservative groups in general, um, pushing back on some of the inroads that feminist groups, uh, gay rights groups, and others have made in places like Peru and elsewhere in the region, right? Um, Argentina, uh, was it last year or earlier this year? I think it was earlier this year. They um, passed uh, a right to abortion for women, which is huge in Latin America. Uh, Peru is nowhere close to any of that. So I think in some ways, Castillo, that connects with, a, you know, a segment of his voting public. Um, but to, in the end, I don't think that's what people were voting for. I think what people were voting for when they voted for, for Pedro Castillo, for the teacher, for the pencil, they were voting for someone who said, Peru is a rich country, and yet it's filled with poor people. And his motto was, no more poor people in a rich country. Right. That is something every Peruvian learns. I mean, Peru's a country with great wealth, with huge gold mines, silver mines, copper mines, very rich agriculture, um, all kinds of natural resources, oil, gas, and yet poverty levels are intense. That you know, in internet internationally. Um, you know, international banks and, and, and whatnot talk about the Peruvian miracle, the high economic growth rate in the, in the, between sort of the 2000s up until just before the pandemic. Peru had very high levels of economic growth, partly because there was a commodity boom globally. Um, uh, but where did that go to? Right. That was not distributed among the bulk of the population. A small group of people, a small sector of the population benefited from that. And the vast majority didn't see any any benefit from it at all. In fact, you know, Peru has been, since the Fujimori government, it's been a very rigid um, neoliberal economic system where uh, the public sector has been shrunk so radically that, and I, and I, and I do think it's important to talk about that because the pandemic has made this very clear. Peru has the highest fatality rate in the world. And that is because of the underlying failures of sort of the, the state to develop a, a robust sort of public health uh, system. Also because something like 70% of the people live based on the informal economy. So what, did we, what were we all told to do during the pandemic? We were all told to stay home. Well, if your if your job is being a, a a work someone who like goes out in the street and sells newspapers or sells pineapples or whatever it is that you sell, if you go home, you're not bringing in any income. You're not going to be able to feed your family. So a lot of people simply weren't able to stay at home. So the pandemic hit Peru especially hard. I think in large part because of that, not because the public sector health. The public sector in general has just been so uh, uh, shrunk because of the neoliberal model that was put in place under the Fujimori government. And that has really not been 
nothing changed at all. Right, right. What you're telling me about how you know how how Peru's uh, economic boom was. It reminds me of like here in the U.S. when a president uh, proudly shows off like the jobs numbers or how the stock market's doing well. It's like, okay, well, who benefits from the stock market doing well? And when it comes to the job number reports, what, what jobs are we talking about when you're talking about people, uh, everyone having a job? Are they having a job that pays them a living wage or are they barely, you know, are they still living in poverty or getting, uh, you know, or on welfare, you know? So it, it's it's very understand. Like, I totally get what's what you're talking about. And I have um, I have a, a family in Peru who, who explained to me how, um, you know, there was a, a time where in, in Chile there was a real, and this probably still goes on a bit, where there was real uh, dislike, I guess, for Peruvians in that country because so many working class Peruvians were going to Chile for work. Right. And um, and what you tell me about the, the COVID, uh, family also told me how they had to deal with one of the ways they dealt with COVID in Peru is, and I, I still don't understand what the thinking behind this was, but there was a, a, a system where, for example, on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, the men could go out and the women had to stay home. And then right. on the other days, it was the opposite. Women were allowed to go out and men had to stay home. What, do, do you know what the thinking behind that was? I don't understand. It was one way they could try to limit and control movement, right? I think that's the reason they right. did it that way. Um, uh, because they realized that people couldn't stay at home. And, you know, frankly, the government failed to really think through, you know, in this pandemic, with so many people dependent on the informal economy, what can we do to help people? One thing they could have done was provide monthly payments to families so they could stay home. They, they, I think they gave out one or maybe two payments. That was it. Sort of like, you know, we, you know, we, we got something like that a couple here and there. Um, but something more systematic, which is something they've done in other countries, that could have been helpful. Right. Um, I have family in Peru as well. My sister-in-law got COVID just um, a couple of months ago. And um, my niece said to me, I'm not taking her to the public hospital where she would be assigned to go. She'll die there because they have no, they have no beds. They have no oxygen. She'll just die there. I'm better off trying to get her treatment at home. Right. And that's what a lot of Peruvians have had to do because there's just a collapse of, um, you know, a very anemic public health sector and, and the private public health sector, sorry, the private health sector is just astronomical. Right. Now, now uh, back to the, the election. Um, we were talking a little bit before about uh, Keiko saying how there's been fraud. And is that is that basically um, and I actually saw on your your Twitter account that a cartoonist basically drew Keiko as the QAnon shaman uh, yes. talking about election fraud and how, you know, election was stolen from her. Um, yeah. Is that based on the rural votes coming in later? Is that where that accusation of fraud is, is solely coming from? Or is there anything else? I'll tell you, the, the, the accusation of fraud is essentially fake news. Right, right. Okay, so the elections authorities have now processed 100% of the voting acts. And Pedro Castillo uh, it 
is is ahead of Keiko Fujimori by about 70,000 votes, about 0.4%. Now, that is a very slim margin. However, she lost in 2016 by 40,000 votes, an even smaller margin. Peru is a very divided society. Okay. Um, But... You know, the inter- there were international observers who monitored the Peruvian elections, at least three teams that I'm aware of, there may be others. All of them said that the ele- they, they actually congratulated the elections authorities for carrying out such a clean and impartial elections process in the midst of the pandemic. Um, the elections authorities themselves found, you know, that everything worked more or less smoothly. There's always going to be um, voting acts or votes that are questioned like a four looks like a nine. So they're, they're not sure about that. So they leave that one to the elections authority to decide. They don't count that one. Um, or, you know, for other reasons, they're, they're, they're questioned. That, that always happens. And there are something around 400 uh, ballots like that that are questioned. But overall, um, the ballots were counted and the results are in. And I don't think um, if you look at the ballots that were questioned in the process, there's no changing the outcome. However, what Keiko Fujimori is trying to do is after the fact, seeing that she's lost, is now claiming that there was fraud, that not the elections authority, but the uh, Pedro Castillo's party carried out some kind of systematic fraud, you know, and she wants to try to invalidate something like 200,000 uh, votes. Which is, it's completely made up. There's no substantive basis for her claims. This is widely agreed upon by all thinking journalists, elections officials, international observers, etc. that I've spoken to, read about, and so forth. It's the, 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 the you know, there's just no evidence. Right, and if right. you look at some of the examples that they've thrown out, like when she had her press conference a couple of days ago, claiming that there were indicators of fraud. First of all, when you think there's fraud in an elections process, there's actually a procedure that you go through. You call attention to the elections authorities. You don't have a press conference and call fraud and create a hashtag, which is what she did, right? (laughs) Right. Um, And secondly, um, the examples that she gave, all of them, none of them were real. They were made up. Um, for, for just to give you an example, um, one example that they raised was a, a, a elections um, a booth in or table is what they call a, a elections table in Puno, which is a very heavily indigenous area, um, where three members of the election, like so, individual citizens participate as um, uh, elections. I don't know what we call them here in the U.S. I have no idea. You're like the person sitting at the table. You go and you decide they give you your piece of paper. Then you go and you fill out your form, right? Right, right, right. Just like election poll worker. Election workers. Election workers. Um, And if you're called up, you're required to do it. It's like your civic duty. Like it's like jury duty. Uh, so oh, three, you, get, you get called in Peru. That's interesting. Because here, you you, it's it's totally volunteer. I mean, you get paid, yeah, but it's get, totally volunteer. If it was volunteer in Peru, no one would do it. That's what. <laughs> it's Standing with vote. It's a, it's a, voting is obligatory in Peru, which is one of the reasons why you have such a high turnout rate. Right. Because people don't want to have to pay a fine. Um. So, um, three members of this one t- uh, voting table had the same last name. So the Keiko Fujimori 
said that this was evidence of fraud because there were three members of a family at a same at a table, and that's not allowed. That's against the, the elections law. Well, no one had bothered to find out if they were actually family members. It turned out they were not actual family; they just happened to share the same last name. It's like having you know, three people named Smith at an election. That's not right. uncommon. It's it, it's widely so. That's what happened. That was not an example of fraud. That and in fact. The, the, the three uh, individuals in question are now uh, asking Keiko Fujimori to apologize for um, accusing them of fraud and saying that they're going to um, sue her for defamation unless she oh, unless she apologizes. So, because sir, if you accuse someone of fraud in the context of election, you're accusing them of a crime. And if, if, the, if the elections authority believe that there is a crime, they have to investigate. Right. And it, it could lead to a prosecution or, or a fine or, or some other kind of sanction. So it's it's serious. Right. Does she have right? Rudy Giuliani going down there? Because it honestly sounds just like uh, Trump's big lie in a number very of ways. Similar. Not, she doesn't have a Rudy Giuliani. She has a hundred Rudy Giuliani. She has some of the best law firms in Peru have volunteered or who knows if they're being volunteered, if they're paying for them, who knows? Um, uh, young law students to go, and they've literally, this is their strategy, to go to the rural areas, the poorest areas, where they're more, and this is their, their, their talking, not mine, where they're more likely to find mistakes hmm. on the voting acts. And of course, those are also the areas where Castillo uh, wins, you know, 80, 85% of the votes. They want to try to nullify, just simply eliminate, obliterate 20, 200,000 votes, and then that would put her ahead. That's their kind of uh, magical thinking is how I like to think about it. Because I, I honestly don't think, I think proving, so her father in 2000 carried out an elections fraud. That's how he was reelected in 2000 for the third time. International observers withdrew, actually, I was in Peru, I was um, an, one of the observers, and international observers withdrew from Peru because of the fraud that was so evident going on that allowed her father to take a third term until he fled a few months later because of the corruption charges that I talked about earlier. Um, so we know what elections fraud looks like. And when, when the new democratic government was, was, uh, came into power after that, one of the first things they did was work to reform the Peruvian elections authority to make sure that there would not be a similar kind of, you know, mucking around with elections. Because elections are, as we know, the centerpiece of democracy. It's not the only part of democracy, but it is a key part of democracy. And so Peru has actually a very, you know, a very good elections authority and a, a relatively clean and, and, and fair elections process. So, um, which is good, right? Because there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot less room for her to get away with what she's trying to get away with. But all that said, she's still agitating her followers, some of whom are very fervent believers that their country is about to turn communist and that their mere existence as is in threat, right. right? And so she's whipped, and I know this sounds like a familiar playbook, right? She's whipped up a frenzy. And so this is the situation we're in right now. And she's trying, she's mobilizing these people saying, you know, there's fraud here and we have to stop this. And what's going to happen when the elections authority goes through all the claims she said and they discard them, discard them, discard them, and 
Still, Pedro Castillo is president. What are these people going to do? Right. Will there be violence? Will there be... Th this is what we don't know is going to happen. This is still uh, in, in the days or weeks ahead. Right. Best so case is scenario is they just dress up in Viking gear, right? I mean, <laughs> that's what happened here. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I think you know when when I saw what was going on, when I, 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 you know, you told me a lot more detail about some of what these election fraud claims, these false claims are. But when I saw what was happening, where the the rural votes, which overwhelmingly voted for for the leftist, were coming in, I, I automatically thought back to what happened in Bolivia where basically you had the same dynamic where Morales had a strong supporter base in more rural areas where people are you know poorer and and are you know more blue collar working class type and those votes started to come in later because it takes a while to get to those votes right. and but in that scenario, and it doesn't seem like it's happened here, and you could, uh, this would be a bad correction. I don't want to hear this, but it doesn't seem like uh, organizations like the OAS are biting the, you know, are taking the bait here, uh, or, or however they did in Bolivia. I think it was more than just that. But, um, you know, it doesn't seem like there is an, inter, uh, an international organization getting involved like they did in Bolivia, because in Bolivia they basically said, oh, we think there's something weird here, and that ended up uh, creating what happened where Morales was ousted by a coup. You had a, uh, a, a Janine Añez come to power with her big Bible, and, and, yes. and there were huge protests and, and activists being killed. Two major massacres. Right. By the Añez government. Yes. Right. And of course, I mean, obviously, by these international organizations getting involved and saying Morales definitely did something weird here, which turned out not to be true later on. I was worried that, oh, we're going to this is we going to see it again in Peru. But it, it doesn't seem like at this point that people are believing Keiko's claims. I don't think they are. I mean. So I don't know if you saw this today, but um, several former presidents of Latin America signed a letter, and I'm sure this was instigated by Mario Vargas Llosa, the Nobel laureate, who in 2011 and 2016 led the anti-Keiko Fujimori campaign, sided with her opponent, told Peruvians to vote for her opponent. Um, and this time he told Peruvians that they should vote for Keiko because he sees Pedro Castillo as a danger as a new Venezuela, a new Cuba, a new shining path, who knows? Um, uh, but this letter was uh, signed by these ex-presidents, most of whom were sort of center or, or right-wing presidents, including Uribe from Colombia, for example. Um, and they said, we think the Peruvian elections authorities should not declare a winner until... The final, you know, the final review of all the election, you know, the votes is done. So basically, they're taking Keiko's word at face value without really um, any evidence. Right. Which to me is really problematic, um, you know, and, and, and smacks of a kind of an interference in the elections process that um, that is again, it's based on magical thinking. It's not based on reality. Um, but I think, the again, fortunately, the Peruvian elect, elections authority and Peruvian civil society is fairly robust. It's important to say that one of the reasons that Keiko lost in 2011 
and again in 2016, and again in 2021, is because there is this broad coalition of people in Peru who understand what the Fujimori family represents. They represent authoritarianism. They re represent um, uh, a, a disregard for the rule of law and for the institutions of democracy, um, and probably violations of human rights. Right. Right. And so there have been these mass protests in 2011, 2016, and you saw it again in 2021, of this anti-Fujimori, Fujimori nunca más, which means Fujimori never again. There's there's a there's a whole collective called Noah Keiko. They've been around for I don't know 15 years now. Um, so I think that that is important to keep in mind. This sort of robust civil society in Peru, um, which you know you can go on 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 the Peruvian. There are several sort of Peruvian uh, uh, news sort of uh, digital news media sites where people are kind of very smartly analyzing everything that's going on and helping us understand why this is not really a fraud. Why, what, and they're literally dissecting where the original claim of fraud comes from, how it goes through different filters and ends back up on Fujimori's desk as her saying this is how fraud happened. Right. So there's a very careful scrutiny of what's going on by civil society, and I think the elections authorities are also pretty strong. So I think that's partly uh, what what we're seeing here. Right. Now, now I, had, I had seen, I had read an article of yours from, I think, uh, just a couple of days ago, maybe, in the Washington Post, and I, I, I had planned on talking a lot more about Shining Path in, in, on, on this show, but we just didn't get around to it. So maybe you could come back in, in the future and we could just have an episode on it. It's probably, probably, we'll, we'll take up a whole episode on Shining Path. But um, it, 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 you, your article basically talked about how suddenly during this election, Shining Path was, was inserted into the, the campaign trail where right. uh, where and, and it, again it seems like i guess uh not the equivalent at all not equating these two groups whatsoever but it seems like just how uh trump found a uh a, a nemesis in antifa uh keiko saw one in shining path or at least the media saw one in shining path and something happened a couple of weeks ago where th they massacre there was a massacre in a small jungle town in Viscatana, a district in, uh, in an area called the Vraim, which is sort of the jungle region to the, in, in the eastern part of Ayacucho and surrounding areas. Um, it's a major drug uh, trafficking uh, region. The coca leaf, which is kind of a, a traditional part of Andean culture, but it's also the main ingredient in cocaine. The Peru's, like 75% of the coca leaf from Peru is grown, and it's native to the Andes, it's native to Peru and Bolivia. Uh, it's also now grown in Colombia, maybe in Ecuador, but it's native to Peru and Bolivia. Um, so 75% of the coca leaf is grown in this area. And there's a remnant, so Shining Path was essentially um, defeated in the mid to late 1990s when its top leadership was arrested. Most of its followers were either, they were either killed or they were arrested. Um, and the top leadership entered in this kind of weird arrangement with the, with the Fujimori government where they urged their followers to um, put down their arms and to participate 
in sort of, you know, legal, political life in exchange for his, you know, the, the leader of Shining Path wanted to have, you know, rights to visit his, his wife. That That's really what he wanted. Right. So, <laughs> um, so uh, Shining Path essentially, you know, it's not that it doesn't exist anymore, but it's not, it, politically it is absolutely insignificant. There's a tiny um, uh, group uh, called Movadef, which tried to get involved in legal politics, did not get very far. It's widely reviled. They follow Guzman, the head of the Shining Path. There are these remnant groups. One was in the Huayaga Valley, which is the northern jungle area of Peru. And then the other one is this Brahim region in the south jungle of Peru, the southeastern jungle of Peru. The Shining Path remnant group in the north was wiped out a few years ago when its top leader was captured, or maybe he was killed, I can't remember. Um, and it was disbanded. And this rump group continues to exist in the Vrheim. They they have um, split from Abimael Guzman. He's the leader of the Shining Path who's in jail. They reject his idea of no longer participating in the armed struggle. They think the armed struggle should continue. But there's like a handful of them. They are basically stuck in this jungle region. And what they basically do is they, you know, they work with the drug traffickers. That's how they survive. So that's where this whole concept of narco, I don't like the term, but this concept of narco terrorists kind of emerged because it's this shining crap that has kind of a political, you know, uh, idea, but it's really all about the drug trafficking. So this is the group that the military claimed was responsible for this massacre, very brutal execution style massacre of 16 civilians, including two children. Um, in front of uh, two bars that apparently were also um, uh, uh, I'm not sure how to say the word in English prostibulos um, where you go to visit women what do you call oh, those? Like, like a brothel? I like or a brothel, thank you I don't know why that word didn't <laughs> um, and uh, so the the military blamed the Shining Path for this massacre. When it was, it might have been this rump group of, of, of the former Shining Path, which is known as the militarized Communist Party of Peru, not the same thing as Shining Path. But a lot of people on the ground that have been interviewed since say that this was a, a, some kind of a drug trafficking kind of execution uh, reprisal kind of a thing. It didn't have anything to, who knows? We don't really know. But the fact is the military published a statement saying it was Shining Path. Now, this was two weeks before the election and you've got ongoing this red baiting campaign by Keiko Fujimori and by the mainstream media, which for all intents and purposes have become in the context of this campaign, a propaganda machine for Keiko Fujimori. It's like, it's, it's as if all the television news stations in Peru were Fox News. And we're only favoring one candidate. That's what it was like in Peru. The only time you saw Pedro Castillo was, was, was on the, you know, kind of like the digital media. He was almost not covered at all. It's really, it was really quite incredible. Um, it, it actually reminded me of what it was like when Fujimori, the father, was in power. Because he mm. controlled all the media. In fact, his Montesinos wrote the news, the nightly news, right? Right. It was sort of like that. Um, so to say that Shining Path was responsible was to feed into this red baiting campaign that Pedro Castillo 
had connections with Shining Path, he had connections with Movadev, or he was connected to Cuba, or he was connected to Venezuela. You know, whatever stuck is sort of what they were portraying. Right. And did, um, it, did it work? Because it, I, I remember reading that Castillo was, was higher in the polls before this happened. So it seemed like oh, maybe he had, he had a 20 point lead at the beginning of the camp. So at the end of the first round, he had a 20 point lead. And as time went by, it was about about eight weeks between the first round and the second round. His his um, lead just declined to absolutely nil. So as the election was starting to, as the actual vote was happening, they were in a statistical dead heat. And I do think that this red baiting campaign had a lot to do with it. But what we see in election results is that it was very effective, perhaps in Lima, among sort of middle class and upper class people. And in the areas of Peru that were hardest hit by terrorism, where I think, where some people might have thought that this campaign would have, would have had more resonance, it didn't stick at all, which is extraordinarily interesting to me. Right. So Ayacucho, Puno, Cusco, regions that were very hard hit by violence, voted 80, 85, 89 percent for Pedro Castillo. That's it's incredible that he he won by that much in some areas. It really is. It's incredible. But I think it's it's also important to th to keep that in mind that it is a country that is deeply divided, and these are divisions that kind of are mutually reinforced by class, by race or ethnicity, and by region. So you have Lima in the north, which is uh, I'm not going to say it's Lima is all white because it's not all white, but there's sort of European colonial, you know. Right. Settler colonialism, right? And there's a lot of people who come from the rural areas who settled in Lima as well. Um, but it tends to be whiter, especially more middle class and more upper class you are. And then the Andean region. So like, there's this kind of re mutually reinforcing cleavages based on race, class, and region. I always tell this to my students. The, the whiter you are, the better off you are in places like Peru. And the darker skinned you are, probably the, the less better off you are. And that's part historical, right? It's a part of a legacy of colonialism, of Spanish colonialism, and 300 years of Spanish colonialism. But it's also a legacy of 200 years of republicanism, of, of, of the Peruvian Republic. And this year is the 200 year, it's the bicentenary in Peru, right? Since it's independence. Uh -huh. Government after government has not addressed these deep divisions of race and class and region. Right. I mean, it, it's it, it seems like there. I mean, I, I I know from from talking with people too that, that you know there's a real racism between Peruvians. So like like you're explaining, like you know Peruvians. I mean, they even you know they they have they have names they call them people who live as they say you know in, in the mountains uh, you know and. and it's a real. I mean, even even uh, even with the and there's a as we see with uh, the Fujimori family's success success in Peru. There's a, a large uh, Japanese um, uh, population in Peru, 
And you know, even uh, Fujimori supporters, if I'm not mistaken, like they chant at him or uh, her, I should say, or maybe they did it with him too. Uh, Chino, 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 even though they're they're not Chinese, well, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a very okay. This is a very interesting. I don't know. It's a very interesting Latin America phenomenon, I think, um, uh, whereby your ethnicity. It's very disconcerting, especially in these days where we're very conscious of racial discrimination, racial disparities, where someone who's, you know, Afro-descendant, their nickname is Negrita or Negrito. Right. That's just weird to me, but it's not uncommon in places like Peru. And so people of Asian descent, whether they're Japanese, Chinese, Korean. Taiwanese, right. it doesn't matter, called Chino. And it's... Fujimori calls himself Chino. It's bizarre, but he was Jap of Japanese descent, but he calls himself Chino. It is one of those very bizarre things that, that, that anthropologists are needed to help us fully understand, I think, right? Right. Um, but it is true. In 1990, when Fujimori was running uh, off in the second round against Mario Vargas Llosa, who is a patrician, white, European-descended, upper-middle-class Peruvian, you know, a writer, right, um, against this Japanese immigrant uh, who was, a, you know, an agricultural uh, professor at a, at a small university in Peru. Um, and I remember there were the, sort of the, the upper class white ladies from the rich neighborhoods in Lima uh, organized street protests against Fujimori, and they were extraordinarily racist. And a lot of Japanese Peruvians were very worried. They, they, and they would say, you know, we've kept a very low profile because we're afraid of racism, racist attacks against us. And Fujimori, he's like in the public eye now, and now, you know, if things go bad with his government, we're going to be, we're going to suffer the consequences, that kind of thing. So there were those racist attacks, but it's interesting how in this electoral process, despite her Japanese ancestry, Fujimori was embraced by the elites because she represented um, the status quo, the status quo that they believe in, that they benefit from, against someone from right rural Peru, from the indigenous part of Peru, um, who they're terrified of. Right. That's just the bottom line. And this is a long thread in Peru's history. You know, the, the wealthy Lima white elites terrified of the poor indigenous masses, you know, coming to claim their due. And, right. I, you know, that's there's a little bit of that at play here, I think. Right. Yeah, I mean... From what I understood of Castillo, and I'm sorry for going so late. I know I told you uh, well beyond, but this has been such a fascinating conversation. So we'll we'll wrap it up here. But I want to just end it with you. Know, what what is so so with it looks like Castillo is going to win, and so so what what is it that we th that that is is uh, you know by people who aren't fear mongering or you know listening to what Keiko is saying and what her party and what the right and Peru is saying, what what is it most likely that he will do? Once he gets into office, first of all, will he even have the power to do it with with the rest of uh, Peruvian lawmakers? I mean, w what is it look like? And you know, knowing how Peru is, will he even will he even make it to the end of his term? I mean, I can't. Who is the last Peruvian president to f 
serve a full term. I don't even, I, I don't even know. <laughs> well, Ocanto Malaf served his five years. He, okay. He, and then he went to jail. He was arrested. <laughs> but every living president, except for the um, dictator from the 70s, uh, either has been charged, is in jail, or is wanted for corruption. And one uh, killed himself as he was about to be arrested on oh, charges. Right. Of I remember this, right? Yes. So, um, yeah. So there's that. The whole corruption thing. I think we haven't hardly even touched upon that. But... Um, uh, so one thing that is clear that if Castillo, uh, uh, is seated as president, as I expect he will be, um, he has a very small caucus in a very divided Congress. He has something like 37 members, uh, of his party in Congress. And even if some of the left and center left parties caucus with him, they don't get anywhere near, <laughs> um, uh, the kind of majority they're going to need to carry out major policy changes. And he's going to face a number of very conservative parties, Keiko's party and the two other right wing candidates who got, they were third and fourth in the national vote. So they have large, you know, not, not huge, but they have large caucuses in Congress as well. So if those three and a few others combined, they have something like 70, 75 votes in Congress. It's not quite enough to overturn, to, to remove the president, but it's not very far. You require, a, there's 87 votes in the current configuration of the Congress. You need 87 out of 130 votes in Congress to remove a president based on this ambiguous category called moral incapacity, which has been abused. And this has been a, an ongoing conversation people have had after what happened last year, three presidents in a week. Um, but uh, I have no doubt that Keiko Fukimori and her allies will try to use that to remove Castillo as soon as they can. I don't think they have the numbers right now, but they might be able to build those numbers. Who knows? Um, so he's going to have a very hard time. He, at the same time, he's promised change. Um, and he's going to want to deliver. He's promised to um, basically establish a constituent assembly to write a new constitution. There's a lot of concern about that, both because of uh, concern about who would be the constituents writing a new constitution. How representative would they be? Um, what kind of constitution are we going to get from someone who's expressed homophobic sentiments, anti-women's sentiments? So there's some concern about that as well. Um, but he's going to have a rough time of it because, and there's also um, within his own party, there's disagreement. Right. Throughout the campaign, one of the things that people have expressed concern about is the president or the executive secretary of Peru, uh, Peru Libre, Free Peru Party, whose name is Vladimir Serrón. He was a governor, I believe, of Junín, a center uh, Andean uh, department. He was convicted of corruption, sentenced, I think, to four or five years, which is the reason he couldn't run for president. He wanted to run for president. He wasn't able to. Um, and many of the uh, Congress people elected by Peru uh, Libre to Congress are loyal to him. And uh, uh, Castillo has had to try to distance himself from Cerrón to bring in other support. So you see what I'm saying? He's got a bit of a, 
he's got a rough time of it within his own supporters. Like whether he's going to even be able to hold his own supporters together is a question, let alone, you know, the right wingers who are going to come barking at the door to bring him down. So I'm afraid of very, um, you know, it could be a very unstable period ahead. I hope that um, cooler heads prevail, but given the polarized nature of this campaign and given Keiko Fujimori's own history, I mean, she's the reason we had three presidents in a week. She refused right. to recognize her loss in 2016 and her determination was to bring down that government. They censored ministers. They, they, um, they shut down cabinets. They removed two presidents and a third was, uh, you know, he, he, he was basically booted out after all those protests. So, um, she knows how to do obstruction. So th she the, knows the, how to destroy. Does the does the does the so does the right sort of in Peru sort of revolve around her in the same way uh, the right here now revolves around Trump? Like, is it the same sort of dynamic? Wow, it's interesting that you ask that question because in the first round election, there were three right wing candidates that got a lot of attention. One was an extreme right-wing, Opus Dei uh, businessman who benefited from Keiko Fujimori's father's economics. Uh, and, and there might be some, I don't know, there's some question of corruption there, but I don't know the details of that. Um, uh, but he's extremely conservative on all levels. He got, he came in third. The the fourth vote-getter was Hernando Castillo, uh, Hernan, sorry, Hernando de Soto, the father of, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurial capitalism, the idea that uh, we all just need to have a t title to our land, become, you know, rich. Um, uh, and those three were sort of disputing leadership. And it, at, at some point, I think people believed that one of those two we're going to defeat Keiko. And in the end, the hardcore supporters of Keiko Fujimori uh, pushed her into the second round. Right. So I think there are people among the Peruvian right who would like to disassociate from Keiko because they see that in the end, it's all about her. And she might be, in the end, very bad for business. This is sounding very familiar. Right? <laughs> what they're interested in. But for others, they don't see an alternative. <clears throat> she brings a cohesion and the name recognition, right? It, it's very familiar. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope, I, this, first of all, this has been an absolutely fantastic discussion. I, I've, I've learned a lot, and it's, it's really great. And I hope people who are watching understand, well, number one, it's important to know about what happens in the, all over the world. But number two, also, it's important to cover. I, I, I think it's been happening in, in the, over the past you know, decade or so where we've been seeing a rise in a far-right authoritarian uh, you know, uh, movement all across the world, really. You know, you if you want to talk about South America, look at uh, Lula being imprisoned and uh, Bolsonaro coming to power. Um, Correct. You can look Kelly and El Salvador. 
Right, right. Shutting down, Congress, uh, shutting down uh, the constitutional court, firing the attorney general. Right, and he don't get me down. started on his latest with Bitcoin. I'm ready to go off on that. That's just, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, even elsewhere with, uh, you know, Modi in India. I mean, they, they, I, I think, and it's become really clear, I think, that, even if they're not directly, like, even if there's not some sort of, like, back-channel communication where all these different movements and governments and leaders are all, all talking, and it's pretty clear that there is a playbook that they're all at least paying attention to and seeing what's successful, what's not, and, you know, learning and uh, gaining power from that. And at least it seems like in South America, uh, th those, uh, you know, th that, that, uh, that authoritarian wall starting to be chipped away by leftist leaders coming to power, you know, even just with the Bolsonaro example, uh, Lula getting out of jail, and it seems like he's going to uh, run against Bolsonaro and probably win. And, you know, you see in Bolivia, even though there was a, a right-wing coup there and, you know, Morales couldn't run again, his successor ends up once again right. uh, winning in an even more uh, decisive victory than Morales originally did. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I think they're, they're, it's pretty clear that, you know, this stuff should be paid attention to, even if you don't, if you're not really international politics, which you should, of course should be, but if you're not, it's important because we saw similar things happen here. Um, and still happening here. It's not, it's not, we're not, we're far from done. Uh, I think it's actually going to get even worse before, uh, if it ever gets better. But, um, Dr. Joe Marie Burt, Associate Professor of Political Science and Latin American Studies at George Mason University and Senior Fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America. And of course, as you all saw, an expert on Peru. Uh, she's written a number of books. Um, is there anything specific you'd like to promote, anywhere people can follow your work? Feel free right now to, to do all that. Oh, j Twitter is where it's at. Um, and Twitter at j Joma Burt, J-O-M-A-B-U-R-T. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, uh, Joe Marie. Really appreciate it. Absolutely uh, great conversation. Uh, hope to have you on again in the future. To have, at least uh, I'm sure there'll be more to talk about. But if anything, I wanted to go you more. You cut out a second shiny. there. Um, oh, I, I said. Uh, there you go. You cut. I, okay. Uh, well, now that I'm back. Uh, I would love to talk more about Shining Path, and of course, if any uh, updates when we uh, know them from Peru in the in the future, I'd love to have you back on. Would be happy to do that. This is really fun, Matt. Nice, nice talking with you, and thanks for having me on. Have a great night. Thanks. You too. Bye bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was uh, really great. I really enjoyed that discussion. Um, I see people in the comments. Uh, really uh, uh, enjoying this discussion. Um, also, I saw some people talk about, I, I didn't want to bring the word up because I know there's different feelings about it, uh, how indigenous people in Peru are referred to as uh, cholos and cholas. Um, I, I see Renee says it's the equivalent to like, you know, the N-word over there, but then I see other Peruvian people saying it's not, it's sort of like an, uh, you know, uh, I, I actually know that word. I know people who are called uh, Peruvian people, I should say, born, raised, lived, or live in currently Peru, who use the term uh, as a term of endearment, endearment, excuse me, cholita, cholito. So I know it's all over the place there. Sort of like what um, uh, Joe Marie was talking about with uh, with uh, the term for uh, uh, Afro-Latinas in Peru, uh, uh, negrita. And I know that there's a uh, Peruvian snack food 
where there is their their um their logo is a Peruvian black woman, and they refer to her as uh, you know, Negrita. I think the food is even called that or something. The like the snack bar. Um, a lot of Peruvians in my life. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, I hope you enjoyed that discussion too. Uh, I'm going to really try to do more, uh, on not only what's going on in Peru, but I think there is some real, you know, you guys know the show, you know what I cover on this show. We sometimes do some other stuff, but the, the main bread and butter of the show that I'm, that's my specialty is focusing on, uh, the right wing conspiracy theories, uh, fake news, misinformation, and how it affects politics, society, culture, technology. Um, and I, I think in Latin America and South America, we are seeing a real, uh, I, don't, I don't even know if it's a like a, a unified front in all these countries, uh, but it, it's happening. We're seeing a real movement against some of these right-wing factions in South American and Latin American countries. Again, like we were talking with Joe Marie, there are still obviously countries where uh, there are problems and uh, their right is in power there. But we are seeing uh, some leftist blowback. And I think it's important to cover these things. So, uh, again, like I said, there is an international far right. Uh, again, don't know if it's unified, but movement going on. And they're definitely taking pages out of their playbook, look at Keiko and her big lie, we can call it. And, you know, this isn't completely new, but I do feel like it's been especially emboldened over these, this past decade or so. Uh, and uh, we'll be doing more of that on this show, for sure. Um, we're going to go to the second half of the show now. If you're watching live on the live stream, you can stick around. I will be taking calls. Uh, I will be uh, playing some clips reading your comments, your questions in the chat. The only way to guarantee, because there's so many questions and comments in the chat, I try to get to as many as I can, but the way to guarantee it, and also to thank me if you enjoyed a specific episode, is to send a super chat. It's like a one-off donation on YouTube live streams uh, where basically it highlights your chat, and I make sure to read those chats. Um, and I will read them in the second half of the show. Um, you can also support this show, if you can, by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash mattbinder. Uh, if you can afford to do so, it would be really appreciated. Uh, I'm really trying to grow this show. We've been stuck at this current patron level for like two months now. Every time we gain a few, we lose a few due to like charge, uh, not uh, 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 credit card, uh, does not, what is it called? Deny, like, someone gets uh I'm having a mental block right now. You know what I'm talking about. Not chargebacks. No one's chargeback on this show, thankfully, so far. But um, you know, when people have problems with their card or, or, or for financial issues, people have to cancel, which, again, I stress. If, if you are uh, having financial issues or, or struggling, you know, with the pandemic still going on, uh, or the regular modern life problems, uh, totally take care of yourself and your family first. Uh, and, you know, if, if you can't afford to become a member, uh, patron, then I really appreciate that. Patreon.com slash Matt Binder. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash Matt Binder. Follow me on Twitch, Twitch.tv slash Matt Binder. This show is simulcast on both YouTube, Twitch, Facebook. I don't even think Periscope is working anymore because Twitter shut it down, but it usually should be on there, but I'll figure that out. I'm going to probably start simulcasting on more places. I'll let you guys know where. 
I also plan on doing a little bit of trying to separate the YouTube and the Twitch. But uh, for now, it's all simulcast. Same show on every platform. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Matt Binder. Instagram, at Matt Binder. Um, I will be uh, setting up... Uh, what else? Uh, search me anywhere, Matt Binder. You'll find me. Um, a, a, uh, a buddy of mine uh, has a uh, TikTok uh, channel he's not using with a few followers that... Uh, they're going to give me and uh, I'm going to use that because I never got on TikTok. I've, you know, and they were like, you want it? You want this? I'm not using it. I was like, yeah, I got no, I should probably start because I'm now tracking TikTok a lot because on another episode, I have an episode planned where I'm going to talk about how TikTok's becoming a major spot for conspiracy theories. It's becoming like viral content on there. It's not just like a play to spread uh, your own political ideology and try to convince people with disinformation and misinfo. It's literally becoming like a viral content meal for conspiracy theories, which honestly is actually kind of worse because people are spreading these conspiracy theories without any thought behind what it's doing. Um, just for the clicks, just for the views, just to become uh, viral on TikTok's for you page. So I got to get on there and this app, someone was like, yeah, take this. So I'm going to set up on there. I'll tell you guys where to find me on there soon. Um, uh, what else? What else? What else? Uh, oh, uh, ratethispodcast.com slash doomed. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash doomed. And on that page, you will find links to where you can leave reviews to the podcast version of the show, which you can find at doomedcast.com. But if you go to that rate this podcast, uh, page, uh, you can leave a, a, a review at Apple podcasts. I think another one's pod chaser. Wherever you can leave a review for the podcast, leave a review. I'm telling you, those reviews actually do work. And I'm going to read. I did this last week, and people uh, sort of uh, enjoyed that I did that. Um, let me read the latest review on the Patreon, on the uh, the Apple Podcast page. Uh, leave a review. I'll read yours next week. Um, the latest review comes from. Do 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 do. Abby Normal, a ah, regular listener of the show. I, I notice her, uh, I recognize her screen name. Uh, Doomed Pod, Best Pod. Matt is a rad punk lefty who hosts excellent, well-researched interviews. His down-to-earth nature makes his show so enjoyable to watch and engage with. Five stars. Hell yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Abby, for the uh, Apple Podcast review. Uh, and patrons, thank you so much. I'm going to name the latest, give a shout out to the latest patrons on the show. Let's see here. We got CHX Misty. Thank you for becoming a patron. Frank H. Thank you for becoming a patron. Hell me. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. And Nam Net, thank you so much for becoming a patron. I noticed there's a few uh, people who used to be patrons who came back, which is a great honor, honestly, to see that because it means, uh, you know, you, you left the show for uh, reasons that weren't, you hated it, and you came back as soon as you could, which is honestly even, you know, I mean, that actually means more to me than like, you know, uh, 
you know, someone uh, beca- becoming a new member, even though I enjoy new members as well, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, it means you guys uh, came back. Came back home. Uh, all right, folks, we're going to the second half of the show now. There'll be a lot more of this show to come. I'm going to take a quick, like, m- not even a minute, a couple seconds to uh, refill my drink so I can keep going. And uh, we have much more to talk about. Give me a second. If you are watching live or if you are a patron, you will see this all. Otherwise, this is where I say farewell and see you all next time on Doomed.